You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Newport Beach 911. I need an ambulance right away. Someone's been stabbed. It's a girl. Do you see blood? Yes. I felt like I caused this. This is the last thing I ever wanted to happen. I'm a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. I wrote the series Dirty John and the podcast. There are life and death stakes in this story. I met John online. He made me feel wonderful. It was the best feeling in the world. John was very attractive, very, very charming. Many women were terrorized. John Meehan was a serial predator. He went from victim to victim, took what he could, and found a new one. I knew he was trying to hurt my mom, hurt my family. I hated John. He broke me in half. I was a good person. Hi, Mom. He's going to turn on you and destroy your life. John is the most dangerous, devious individual that I ever prosecuted. We arrested him, and inside the backpack, he had a revolver, hundreds of rounds of ammo. I knew that John was capable of murder. One of the lessons of this story is that monsters don't always look like monsters. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, this week, I'm pivoting slightly because I really wanted to share this important and fascinating interview with an incredible survivor and Shiro, Deborah Newell. Now, you may well know Deborah's name. You might think you know her story, but I can assure you that you don't. You may have heard of her from the podcast Dirty John, which has been downloaded more than 85 million times. And it was Chris Goffard, the Los Angeles Times journalist, who really brought this story into the public domain. And you'll hear Deborah talk about that. And also the fact that I had interviewed Chris Goffard just before the podcast dropped. And I said to him, did you know that this is all about coercive control? And I'm going to share with you what Chris's response was. After that interview, I then had a message from Deborah Newell and from her friend. You're going to hear more about that and what happened within this interview. There's also a Bravo show called Dirty John, which had Connie Britton playing Deborah and Eric Banner playing John Meehan. Maybe you saw that too. It was on Netflix. 
And there was an Oxygen documentary, Dirty John, The Dirty Truth, where I served as a consultant producer, where you heard from many other women who were victimized by John. So you might think you know everything about this case, but Deborah has now written a book called Surviving John Meehan. And she felt very strongly about setting the record straight about what really happened. And those of you who tune into me regularly know that I'm a victim advocate. I like victims to have a platform to tell their story in their own words and to stand powerful in their own narrative. That's why I wanted Deborah to come on to Crime Analyst and talk to you about her book and some of those revelations. And you'll also hear us talk about our work campaigning and lobbying for coercive control laws here in America, and you'll hear how you can help us. And it's a really important interview because I've been deconstructing coercive control with other survivors and, of course, in Gabby's case. But there are still so many people who don't really understand it. So I will be pivoting back to Gabby's case and deconstructing what happened post the police van stop I'm putting a pin in that for now because I really want you to hear what Deborah has to say. So without further ado, here is this incredible interview with Deborah Newell. And also just to say, I'm going to give you a trigger warning and listener discretion is advised because it's not easy content and you might find it upsetting and or triggering. And also you would probably find it angry making. But it's important that you hear, in Deborah's own words, what she has to say about the TV shows and what perhaps wasn't framed in the right way. So without further ado, here's my interview with the amazing Deborah Newell. Hey, lovely listeners. I'm really happy to say that I am sat here with one of my favourite people, somebody who I have wanted to talk to on Crime Analyst for a while. And that person is... Deborah Newell. So nice to be here, Laura. I'm so excited and so excited to meet your little boy. He's so cute. Yes, and unfortunately, my lovely listeners won't get to see that, but I have some wonderful pictures of Rafi meeting Deborah. And I was very lucky that Deborah threw the most wonderful baby shower with Tara. We've known each other for a number of years, and I really wanted an opportunity to talk with Deb and share with all of you much more about her story, actually, because a lot of the story hasn't made it into the various documentaries and um, the scripted show and the podcast. Now, of course, people will remember that Chris Goffard actually put together a podcast and that's where you first became aware of Deborah's story. And so I'm really happy to talk with Deb Moore about the book that Deborah's written. So Surviving Dirty John, My True Story of Love, Lies and Murder. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do. But we're going to give you some of the headlines from it today, because for me, it's a really important story for people to hear and to learn from. And that's really how Deborah and I first connected. And we both feel very strongly about the learning, don't we, Deb? We definitely do. If I would have known a lot of this, I probably would have reacted differently and understood it a lot more than I do from the past. But right now, I, I've learned so much. I can't begin to tell you. Yes, the learning curve about coercive control. We're going to mention those 
two words right up front, because unfortunately that's what was missing from the podcast of actually explaining what coercive control was. And I guess, Deb, when we first got to know each other, well, I remember you reaching out to me and you sent me a message on Facebook and you had heard me interview Chris Goffard. In that interview, I had talked about coercive control and Chris said he had never heard of coercive control. And I talked about some of the things that I felt were very much characteristics of and traits and signs of coercive control. And I remember that Facebook message where you said, my goodness, I've heard you talk about what happened and you've really empowered me and you've given a language to the things that happened to me. And I've been blamed for some of the things that happened. And for the first time, actually now I understand that it wasn't my fault and you thanked me. And that was such a lovely message to receive. It really was. And it shows the power of podcasts and interviews as well, doesn't it? And that was just as the podcast had dropped Take us back just to that time, because actually Chris Goffard, what people don't know is that Chris had reached out to you at a time when you were still very much in the middle of it all. I mean, terror had been attacked and it wasn't that long afterwards that Chris reached out to you. And that's really where the podcast came from. Yes, the podcast came from, I'm going to say, two months after the stabbing. And I was still completely in shock Tara was in shock. I think everyone involved just didn't even have a clue of what was going on in their own brain, yet alone trying to resolve what they had gone through. At the time that Christopher talked to me, I was not making sense of what had happened whatsoever. So I was sharing the story, the process, from meeting John all the way up until the stabbing. If anything, it, I probably shouldn't have spoken at that point, especially to a man, I hate to say, but he had no idea of what I had gone through. And it wasn't until Laura, when she reached out um, after I had listened to her podcast, that I finally understood what had happened to me. But again, I had a lot of healing to do. And here I am at year five, and you're still going through it. You don't realize that it takes some time to get through. Yes, trauma definitely takes time to work through and process, and, and we'll talk about that. And I think it's important that people understand that you were right in the middle of that experience. And you mentioned a, a man telling your story. And I, I do have a view on that. And it doesn't necessarily just relate to Chris. It's just a general view that I really believe that women should be telling women's stories. I think so much of what we experience is nuanced. And if the person we're talking to doesn't make sense of it, the lens that they then see it through and what they then produce as a consequence means that it can become even more confusing about what went on. And particularly if people want to be sensationalist as well. And of course, we know Dirty John was listened to. I mean, 75 million downloads, it's probably even more now, right? And a lot of our conversation early on, Deb, was about you saying I gave you a language to understand what had happened, which for me is very important to hear from you, actually, because it's exactly why I do what I do. But the second part was about the victim blaming. You received an awful lot of vitriol, didn't you? There was a lot of victim blaming because of the way that the story had been framed mm -hmm. and certain things that had been left out. 
And, and one of the key things that really struck me of what had been left out was just about your ability and capacity to understand that you needed help and that you did contact a lot of professionals, really, to get advice from people about what you should do. And that was left out of the podcast. So it made it look like you kept going back and you weren't doing anything to help yourself when you actually did seek help from experts, from a psychiatrist, from somebody trained in security. And you also contacted the police multiple times a key detective that was involved in the case. And even just before terror was attacked, you contacted that detective for help and you said that things were escalating. Do you want to just tell my listeners about that? I know you've got the text with you and I'd love it if you could just read out what you wrote. So here's the the email that I had sent to Detective Russell. It says, hello, Detective Russell. I have had over 100 emails from John in the last few days. We have blocked him, and he started a new email. They stopped yesterday, and I thought that was odd. Last night, I had my daughter come home frantic that John was sitting in a car outside of our apartment. When she realized who it was, she tried following him. He went too quickly for her to catch him. My concern is last time he had this anger, he came to town, stole the car, and burned it. I am concerned he's here to do a lot more damage. Is there anything that I can do to stay safe? So that's a very important message. And and Deb, I remember we talked about you writing the book, and I just want to bring it back to the book. These are the sorts of things that are in the book, and it's probably why you felt it's so important to write the book, isn't it? Well, why don't you tell my listeners why it was important to write the book? I think it's probably better to hear from you rather than me paraphrase. One of the reasons I felt it was so important writing the book had so much to do that there were so many key elements left out from really what happened to me with coercive control, along with the amount of people I reached out to. The reason I went back is really not explained well. And I really felt like, for instance, I had a forensic psychologist working on this giving me points along the way of what and who John was. But at the time, he was known to be a sociopath and predator, so he was not escalated to the point of being a psychopath, which is what we have now come to the conclusion that that's what he was. Yes. And I think, you know, those omissions are very important for people to understand. The other aspects are, well, we'll we'll talk them through because for me, some of the things that jumped out were when we first met each other and we'd been talking for some time, but we actually met on International Women's Day, didn't we? And it, it just so happened that because I was out, I think I was working on the Kaylee Anthony case at the time. I was in Florida when there was a big event in Los Angeles. And I was invited to be on the stage and and meet you and be part of a panel that was put on as part of Dirty John. And each time there was something where we would have met, other things came up for me. And so it happened that we met on International Women's Day. And I still remember that day. I thought it was serendipity and synchronicity that we meet on that day in particular. But also then you mentioned to me that it was the anniversary of Cindy's murder. Mm-hmm. And that just really struck a chord for me. I mean, what are the chances of that we're meeting on that day? And we raised a glass to Cindy, didn't we? Mm-hmm. And the, the more I heard about Cindy, I, I really felt that she hadn't 
been honoured in the initial podcast. So there wasn't really much detail about what happened to her. And the more you and I talked, the more I felt that there was coercive control and there were behaviours that had happened to, to Cindy that hadn't really been understood. And there was no way that she was just, for me, when I understood the, the case, that she was just shot by Billy without anything happening before that. So I would love to just talk about Cindy and to honour her. And we both feel very strongly about that. Um, but I always remember you saying very clearly to me, I believe it was a premeditated murder. So can you just share with people just a little bit about what was happening for Cindy and what went on in that relationship and, and what happened and why you believed it to be premeditated? Well, my sister got married, Cindy Vickers, at a very young age, 18. I think it was her birthday. And went into the marriage. But what we noticed, she was beautiful, intelligent. I mean, she had it all as far as the package, who she was. And in the marriage, we noticed her becoming sad and just not happy. And some of the things that we noticed along the way is when she would go to the beach, Billy had to come and she had to wear a cover-up. And she had this gorgeous hourglass body. And so we thought that was a little bit odd. When Cindy and I would go to the gym, which was probably three times a week, Billy would have to sit in his car. And of course, we had to pick a gym that had glass to where he could see us exercising the whole time. But he had to watch us. And there were many times like that that stood out. And back then, I was just thinking, oh, he's controlling, and he's so in love with her. I had no idea to the extreme that it was. But years later, I think it was around the OJ time frame, when he had just, when everything had happened with Nicole, I was on TV, and I was remembering some of the things that had gone on during their marriage, and then at the time of her murder. And I was talking to a girlfriend. I had done some investigating at this point, And one of them was Sharon, my girlfriend. And she made a comment, you know that he threatened her all the time that he would kill her if she ever left. And I said, you're right, he did, didn't he? And she also mentioned the fact that there had been a call just days before she had left. And it was from a guy that was selling him a gun. And Cindy happened to pick up the phone in the other room at the same time that he picked up the phone. And what was mentioned when she walked out of the room was, why are you buying a gun? And he said, I told you, if you ever try to leave me, I will kill you. And I really feel that this was very much premeditated the way that it happened. With him that day, my sister, they had sold the home. She had gone home to pack up. And she was sitting at the desk doing some of the bills. But Billy had told his oldest son, which was 11, to walk to Grandma's that day. And also the youngest one, which was five, he was in preschool. And so Billy walked in and shot her literally in the back of the head and killed her. And she went just straight down on the desk. I get into the details in the book, but... It wasn't until Laura talked about curse of control that I was able to understand that's what happened to my sister. Every time I hear you talk about Cindy Deb, Deb I, 
I mean, I do just feel really choked up hearing what happened. I mean, just all his behaviours, the following, the micromanaging, the laying down these rules and regulations and and making her life miserable, Mm -hmm. actually. And for it to end so brutally, I mean, yes, it was preventable. For me, this is a murder in slow motion, Mm -hmm. but you had to live with that. And and more so that we know through the podcast, of course, that your mother did choose to forgive Billy for what had happened. And it was her evidence that really did turn the the judge and others into the, the lenient sentence which must have been very difficult as well. But I I think all the hallmarks that you describe, I mean, now when we talk about coercive control, it's important for people to know that you can be stalked in a relationship too, as in when you're still together. And it sounds to me like there was coercive control and stalking. And then, of course, when she separated, she wanted to get on with her life. She had started a new relationship. And with separation, that can be you know, again, the the heightened time, the most mm-hmm. concerning time, and particularly if there's finality, when someone says, I'm never coming back. And everything that you described, and I remember the first day we met you saying that you felt it was premeditated, mm-hmm. and that was never even a factor at, at the trial, that this had been thought out, this was a planned event. He didn't just happen to walk in there with a gun. He had to think all of those things through, which somehow makes it even more difficult to understand. And of course, you go through, it's not, you don't get closure. It's every day, it's every birthday. It's you and your family and Cindy's children. You all have to live with this Mm -hmm. of one man's actions. He chose to kill her because he couldn't have her. And it's just absolutely horrifying that then what happened with you and John you know, and I believe Cindy was sort of blamed in her own death or that she had somehow done things in a way that had, and I hate to even say the words, but provoked him into acting. But I think that was a general sense that seemed to to be that if she had just stayed with him, then it wouldn't have happened. And then for you to be blamed in a similar vein. Mm-hmm. And I, why I bring those two points together is because even in the most heinous of situations when somebody else is being violent, when a man is being abusive, when a man is regulating us, that too often people still look at the victim and the woman and blame her as if she is responsible for that man's actions. And I just really want to underline that a woman is never to blame for a man's violence. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Violence is never the answer, and it is purely the actor's decision to behave in that way. Someone who feels entitled enough to take action and to be violent, to control and regulate someone else's behaviour, or this notion of if I can't have you, no one can, which is about revenge and is absolutely about male entitlement and privilege. Um, It's also about narcissism. You know, only I matter. If I can't own you then no one will. And this is where women are seen as belongings and possessions mm-hmm. and right. And there is never an excuse for male violence. There are so many benefits of microdosing and all sorts of people are microdosing to feel healthier and perform better. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And who doesn't want that in life? I love how helpful these gummies are. 
For me, half a microdose gummy on the weekend helps me stay centered and fresh as I work out and get everything done on my weekend to-do list. One gummy, about 30 minutes before I go to bed, helps me relax at night and really be present in the moment, instead of worrying about things from that day or thinking about what's coming tomorrow. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com promo code crime analyst. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code crime analyst for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com promo code crime analyst. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is there anything else you want to share just about Cindy or what happened? Well, one thing, and I think this is why my mom testified the way that she did, was Cindy, every time we get together, Cindy seems so unhappy and just not a happy human being in general. And Billy would walk in the room very charming, very happy. And so what we realized years later is what happens behind closed doors is so different than how they're trying to portray themselves. So he would walk in and act like everything is great. And she was still having the aftermath of what she had gone through. I wish I would have known more. I wish that, I wish to this day that she would have shared with me what was going on behind closed doors so I could have helped her or at least done some research to try to figure it out. But I think back 30 years ago, we didn't. We kept it pretty silent. And now I think we're able to talk about it a little bit more so, but we have a far, far, a long, long way to go. Yes, I think that's a really important point. And I know there'll be people listening even now to us talk and may not have articulated to anybody what's happening or may not even realize what's happening is abuse. And if it's coercive control, well, it is a crime in England and Wales, in Ireland, in Scotland, um, in various other countries now too. And Deb and I have been pushing for law reform here in America, and we are talk about that towards the end but there is always someone who can help you. You're right, Deb. I mean, things have changed, but I think there's still a lack of understanding Mm -hmm. about coercive control and the non-physical aspects of abuse, that it doesn't always co-occur with violence. I mean, actually, a lot does co-occur with even the threat of something physical or something physical happening, but it can be that tactics are used such as economic abuse, so financial Mm -hmm. abuse or threats or threats towards the children or creating codependency Mm -hmm. and taking away your freedom, um, not allowing you to have access to resources or maybe to work or maybe making you work two jobs. Emotional abuse and psychological abuse, where they're normally sub sub behaviours to coercive control. So again, looking at the psychological stuff, is someone meeting your needs? 
Because if someone's withholding and they're not, well, that is abuse too. A healthy relationship works on two people meeting each other's needs. That's really what it is when you strip it all bare. But of course, we've come from a culture and traditions in, in Western society where women have been subjugated. And even the vow, love, honour and obey, and a woman being walked down the aisle by the head of the family and handed over to the husband to be, even that act itself is treating a woman like she's a possession or property or entitlement. And of course, there is the old school who still thinks that a woman's job is to meet the needs of her man, to keep the house and the family together. And we see it a lot in religion and, and in society as a whole. So again, your upbringing really did play into, you know, what's a woman's role? And once you get married, you're seen as really that you're the homemaker, you're the the mum who stays at home. So again, there's a lot of, it's micro and macro. And I always like people to think about it like that. It's not just what's happening in that relationship. It's actually the wider patriarchy. And the P word is important here because it's, again, setting sex-based roles of what is expected for a girl and a woman and what's expected for a boy or a man. And unfortunately, what we do tend to see is that boys and girls are treated differently and boys are seen as more valued and are given more encouragement to be leaders and to take what they want from life. Whereas girls, sometimes the messaging, and it's not always a conscious thing, but the messaging is, you know, to be kind, to be grateful, to be polite, to meet other people's needs, to be nurturing, to be maternal, all these things, to be compassionate, to... You know, all these things where we're expecting little girls and women to be more nurturing and to always put their needs below everybody else's. And so is it any wonder when things go wrong in a relationship that girls and women tend to look to themselves first of all for what's going wrong rather than look to the partner of things that they might be doing? So there's a lot of psychology at play, but it's not just the micro, it, it's the macro. We've got to look at the big picture. And talking about the big picture, Deb, what was for me very interesting in the book, and I'm really glad that you wrote about your experiences as a woman of male violence, not just what happened with John, but actually the things that happened before John, which again, shapes you. Um, and it shapes you in the, and I, I will say that many women have multiple experiences of male violence and trauma. It's not just a one-off. It's not just one experience. And I really wish it wasn't. But what stood out to me was about the guy who was stalking you, an unknown person who was stalking you and who actually broke into the address that you were living in with Cindy and, and Billy. And he attacked you. And I mean, the fear for me is just palpable coming off the page. Can you just say something about, about what happened? And, you know, I was curious to see that he was arrested. You thought he was going to rape you and that he was going to kill you. Yes. And, I mean, that must have been terrifying. Well, I'll sort of sum it up. I came home one, one day after work and I noticed my drawer was open. It was my lingerie drawer. And I thought, hmm, this is odd, but I also noticed my window open. So I went to bed that night thinking, did my roommate come home and borrow something? Or <laughs> what happened and forget her key? So I believe it was a couple days later, I come home again and the window's open and my drawer's open again, but something's on the bed. 
And I ended up getting a call. And this is back in the day with payphones. And he calls. He said, I've been watching you. Uh, you're beautiful when you sleep. I noticed you had on, you know, and he named what I had on. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who is this? The voice sounded familiar, but I didn't know who it was. This went on for maybe two or three more nights. I called the police. They put a detective on it. And anyway, I was so paranoid, I moved out of my apartment. And I moved in with my sister, Cindy, and her husband, Billy. Well, anyway, I would say a couple weeks went by. And I came home one night, and it was during the fall, because it was about 5, 5.30. Walked in. He grabbed me, put his arm around me, and he put a knife to my neck. And he said, lay down on the bed. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, it's him. Anyway, I laid down on the bed, and he proceeded to try to pull my clothes off of me, keeping the knife at my neck. He said, I'll kill you. And I remember Billy walking in right at that point, getting off work. And the guy ran off. He pretty much saved my life. And I don't recall, but he got sentenced and uh, arrested for this. But I blocked it after that. It's interesting how you block something. Yeah, I mean, it sounds terrifying. And you can read about it in, in Deb's book, utterly terrifying. And it doesn't surprise me in some ways that you don't know too much about what happened thereafter. Sometimes with trauma, that's exactly what happens. We sometimes don't want to know any more information about that person and we want to move away from it. And we may not revisit it. And But the questions that I had were very much about, well, what was he arrested for? What was he charged with? And what was he sentenced for? Because again, we know that even when individuals are arrested, and it can be rare in a predatory stalking case, that not always are they put before the courts on a charge of stalking. But my concern is with serial perpetrators always is where is he now and how many other women may have been victimized by him because it does sound like I mean you recognize the voice Mm -hmm. but someone behaving in that way with predatory stalking and calling up putting you under surveillance and then breaking in and acting on it grabbing you Mm -hmm. utterly terrifying and it made me understand just a little bit more Deb about your life journey and why when very early on we met you told me that you wanted to feel protected by a man. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain? I mean, that is one example of why I can understand why you felt like you wanted to be protected. But just shed a little bit more light on that, because I know when you met John, that was one of the things that you looked to. And that was, Mm -hmm. I was always curious about it, why you kept saying to me you wanted to be protected by a man. And and I'm sure some of it is shaped through your experiences of male violence, but some of it may be from upbringing too. I was born with something, it's where the bladder and kidney are not connected with a tube. And so I was an extremely sick child and I was in the hospital quite often. And my dad, every day after work, he would sit there for hours and just sit there. And there was this protection that I felt with him being right near me. My mom was busy with two other kids and many other things, but through the years, there was that feeling of protection. And then my upbringing, my dad was a great, great man, strict, but a great guy in so many ways. 
And I felt like he was all about protection, protecting my mom, protecting us kids, so on. But my religion, I was raised uh, Nazarene, which I don't know if anyone knows what that is. But it's where the man, it's a very traditional role. He makes the living and the mom stays home and she's in charge of cooking, cleaning, so on and so forth. And so all my upbringing, I was taught one of the roles was to be submissive. Another one was to forgive. No matter what, you forgive continuously. So, and my mom was and is still to this day one of the sweetest women you could ever meet. But this is what you're taught is to forgive over and over and over. And the man protects you. Yes, and I think probably a lot of people don't realize that you're a true survivor. And why I wrote that in the sense of your book is because you survived something as a child, an illness that they weren't sure that you would survive from. And and that shows real strength, actually. Um, But also it characterizes um, not just survival, but your dad and your mom playing a key role in shaping um, and setting the scene, I guess, for you, norming things of what you should be looking for too in a relationship and in a partner. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So again, we're always the product of all of our life experiences. And from an early age, we are given a template at times of what we should be seeking to achieve. And that might be in a relationship. And it made more sense to me understanding, as it always does, someone's life journey as to decisions that you make, but also when you kept saying that you wanted to be protected Unfortunately, sometimes we can look in the wrong places for that protection. And you and I have had that conversation many times, or you can look in the wrong places for intimacy. Unfortunately, when you are a polite, kind, empathetic, compassionate woman, there are those that will absolutely take good care of you and respect your boundaries and who you have very positive relationships with. But unfortunately, it can attract narcissists and it can attract psychopaths. And psychopaths always look for the empath. It's like the perfect combination. We always have to think about what does that mean in terms of prevention and protection. Um, If you are a very empathetic person and if you are polite, kind and generous and you haven't been targeted or met a narcissist or a psychopath at any point in your life, I would suggest to you that's more by luck than by anything else. So when we look to blame women when they've been victimized because they've been kind and empathetic, that's a real oxymoron for me. You know, when someone is victimized because of positive traits, 
But of course, I do work with lots of women about how to protect yourself. And I think from our early conversations, Deb, I would always say that to you, that it's about your validation and your autonomy and your agency and protecting yourself rather than looking to someone to do that for you, particularly when you come into contact with someone like John Meehan, who hasn't got, you know, a badge or a tattoo on his head saying what I now know him to be, which is a psychopath, as I did indirectly assess him using the psychopathy checklist. And I'll say something about that in a minute. But... John, when you first met him, of course, didn't appear in that way at all. He appeared charming and charismatic and a great listener. I always remember you saying that. Yeah, so tell me just about and tell my listeners just some of the things that you saw in John when you first met with him, how he first presented. So when I first met John, the one thing that I noticed, I'd been on a few dates prior to that. I noticed that he listened to me. And he asked questions. He asked, you know, how was my day? What do I do for a living? And so on and so forth. And I had felt like the other men that I'd gone out with, it was all about them, opposed to a two-way conversation. He was also polite, charming, funny, intelligent, acted like a family man, loved dogs. I'm a dog lover. (laughs) And so he was checking off all the boxes, but what I didn't realize is he was listening. He he was gathering information to use it at some point against me, but also to get me to fall in love with him. So he was somewhat love bombing me right away. Yes, and I do believe that he was. You know, for me, when I've worked cases like this and from analyzing John Meehan specifically and from hearing you talk about what went on, Uh, What I know about perpetrators like John is the setup starts from day one, from the very moment they meet you, and even before that, in the communication that they have with you. And they're testing boundaries. They're looking to see who you are, whether you're compassionate, whether you're pliable, whether you're malleable, whether there are vulnerabilities there. Um, And I'm talking about vulnerabilities in the sense of even when you're looking for love, you can be vulnerable. I'm not talking about weakness. And I think that's a very important distinction. And I remember us having conversations in in the early days, anyone who's looking for love will share more information. But if you're an open person which you are, Deb, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you probably share more than what the average person (laughs) would, right? Yes. And we've Mm -hmm. talked about that. And we talked about the fact that other men in your life hadn't really been attentive and listening and really into what you were saying at times, particularly when you get married, you can right. Right? be in that take for granted the other person and not really listen to them. And oftentimes women aren't listened to or heard and we don't feel seen. I felt prior to John and with John that I was always somewhat of a trophy. <laughs> Obviously, I tended to have men in my life that were a little bit more aggressive, powerful. They, whether it be they made a great living or just a stronger personality, the leader is what I was drawn to. And I looked at, for instance, charming as a good trait. And I learned later on that that is not necessarily a good trait. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Charm is a decision. As I always say to you, Deb, it's a decision. It's not something we're born with. Right. Charm really does disarm us. And normally people use it to increase likability. 
But I do just want to preface some of the things that we've been saying with, let's not forget, Deb, you are very successful as well. Yes. You know, you've worked really hard across your life and you've been very successful. Right. And so that's also what John saw, right? Sometimes I think that the, whether it's a psychopath, sociopath, narcissist, the bigger the trophy, the better they look. And so a lot of them do go after very successful women. And I just happen to be lucky and and also work very hard and have a design firm that I was in my heyday when I met John. Yes. And I think that's an important point for people to understand as well. I completely concur. You know, what I've seen across my career is strong, independent, successful, fearless women Mm -hmm. being targeted. And when they are targeted, and I'm using that word specifically because it is as purposeful as that, it's intentional, part of the thrill of the chase of the psychopath, the narcissist going after that person is the fact that they're strong, the fact that they probably push back a little bit to begin with. And you called it a trophy, but yes, it's the enjoyment of the undoing. Mm -hmm. And part of that plays in. I mean, psychopathy is all about power and control. Mm -hmm. So they will be whatever you want them to be to begin with. They will literally be chameleon-esque and mimic exactly who you say you want. And, you know, I've talked to really strong women and they will say, I now realize from talking to you, Laura, I literally gave them a laundry list of the things that I wanted in a man and what I didn't want. And when I talked about my past relationships, date one, date two, about what I wouldn't put up with, my deal breakers, then obviously that gives a very clear steer to that person of who they need to become. And then they can become chameleon-esque. And so whatever you're just seeing, it's a mirror image of you, whether it's that you're into, you know, whatever your interests might be, tennis or cooking, or and then suddenly they're at the same club or they're doing the same activity. Oh, me too. I'm really, and they literally mirror everything. It can be about traits. They become a very good, attentive listener. And they seem like they're very into you. We're actually, and we've talked about this a lot, where they're just collecting information. And that information will be used and weaponized at a point when they need it. So you might even feel that you're sharing a vulnerability with them and then they match you and they share a vulnerability. But you're probably not looking to use that vulnerability they've shared with you against them. You're using it to build trust and intimacy and to grow the relationship. Mm -hmm. Whereas the true narcissist and psychopath, they will use that information. They will store it up and later it will come out and be used against you. And it's a horrible feeling when that happens are very different than our intentions, yes. Absolutely, intentions and motivations. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're very much motivated, and John was by power and control, and there can be a financial aspect to it too, but it can also be the power and control of having that power and control over someone, mm-hmm. and they get off with that. And that equally can be the sole motivation of why they love bomb, they want to get you under control. And that is very much a deliberate campaign Mm -hmm. to win someone's heart. And unfortunately, John did that relatively quickly with you because he knew the blueprint of how to get there and sort of cajoled you down the line to get you to Vegas. And then you married in secret, which you knew knew it wasn't right. Because I remember seeing the video that you showed me and I said, yes, I can see that you know you're doing something that you're not 100% 
invested in, but you're doing it anyway. And you know that you probably shouldn't be doing it. And I remember you laughing and saying that was exactly the feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. But I also, before we wrap, there's a couple of points that I'd really like to just talk about from the book. And I just want to, I mean, is it weird if I read from your book or do you want to read the segment oh, from your ahead. book, Deb? Because I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to just talk about the other side to John, which is basically what a frightening individual he was. And sometimes it's not easy to understand just how terrifying somebody is even when they're characterised in a show. I mean, this was your lived-in reality. And slowly, as you started to peel the layers back to who John was, you realised that he wasn't, too, well, you said too good to be true, this right. perfect guy, right, mm -hmm. who was making these grand declarations to you. You found out bit by bit and through one of your daughters, mm -hmm. who was amazing at mm -hmm. really pulling down the curtain as to who John truly was. Yeah. but. You found a load of things, uh, emails and, and so forth, and you read through a lot of emails that John had sent, and it was very sobering for you. And there's a section in the book, it's page 189, that I would love for you to read, or I'm happy to. I just don't know if it would be odd if I read it out. You want me to read it? Yes, please. Okay. Reading his printed email exchanges was beyond sobering. John told one woman he had become involved with that he was going to tell the school where she worked and that she was a prostitute. He warned her that he was going to show pictures of her in various sexual poses to the school officials, post the pictures online, print them out, and hang them inside the school where she worked. Yeah, and just going on from there, there's just this other section here, Deb. One email said... You will leave town and do so by the end of the month. Go home to mum and dad, if they'll have you. You understand what I'm capable of. You don't want this. If you so much as think about sex with another, I bury you both and I'll videotape it. The last guy you fucked, you would tell me who it is. You would take care of me the entire year. You would find a girlfriend and the both of you would do me. You would do this within a month. Those were John's demands, if she wanted to avoid embarrassment and being fired. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Turning the pages, I understood that John was a vile human being capable of anything. He had a hunger for revenge I had never thought existed in people. So you start to see a very different side to John and how he treats women. And obviously everything that he's saying is about control, using a woman's vulnerability and then exploiting that to control them, right? Oh, 100%. When I was with John in the beginning, I was... Like I said earlier, love bombed. He said, did everything right, including he would put gas in my cars, do all the maintenance, bring the dry cleaning in, every errand that I need done. And it was so nice just coming home and we would take our long walks uh, along the beach. So my life was becoming much easier, which it's a good feeling when you think somebody's wanting to take care of you and do things for you because they love you so much. Little did I know. Yes, they're too good to be true. But I think that what you found out about him, he was so different. And he was a serial perpetrator. He had done this to many women. It wasn't just about you. And that's probably a horrible feeling too, when you're seeing all these things that's a very different side to him. And you actually did do everything right. I remember saying that to you from mm -hmm. the start. You went to the police you told people what was happening. You understood that John meant business in these moments. 
Um, you took advice. And um, when you went to the police, because there's another section in the book that I just want to read from about what happened when you went there. And then perhaps you can just explain how you felt when you went to the police. So this is what you wrote. In April 2015, I finally went to Irvine Police. I was scared of what John would do once he was out of hospital. Was he going to start emailing my clients? Was he coming after me? Was he going to clean me out of all my money? Was he going to harm my children? To say it was humiliating when I spoke to the police the first time would be to understate the seriousness of the situation. It was far worse. The police had me sit there for hours waiting for someone to talk to. I was amazed at their lack of response and empathy. When officers finally sat down to hear me out, I felt as if they were annoyed that they had to deal with a troubled marriage. It was as if this was some sort of wife versus husband quarrel they didn't want to get involved in. I went to the Laguna Beach police and they responded in the same way. The Newport police treated me like I was the aggressor, the victimizer. Law enforcement officers concluded there was nothing they could do. I had no bruises, no proof I was being abused and no confirmation John was planning anything. There was no direct threat. I felt the police had judged me to be a hysterical female overreacting to a domestic squabble. The message was clear. Go home and settle your marital differences between the two of you. Was it the 1970s? I couldn't accept that I was being victimised by a man who had a history of harassment and nothing was being done to protect me or my family. I'll be back, I told them. I walked away from those meetings, which occurred over a two-day period, thinking something had to change. Where does that take you back to mentally? You feel as though nobody wants to hear what you have to say and they're not willing to do a thing. And you're going to the authorities that should be protecting you. I went to four different police stations and all, and not one of them would listen to me. I had evidence. I kept emails, text messages. I actually had a 319-page report of him threatening, I think it was private detectives, along with 23 charges, if I recall, of what he had done to this woman from stalking, breaking in, you name it. And also his reports, uh, what he had done back in the, I believe it was 2001. So even though I had all this evidence, they didn't want to look at it. They literally told me to go home, which is the worst thing they can do. And I felt like, what am I supposed to do? So I actually went back to John because I needed to come up with a plan and understand what I was dealing with. Yes, and this is exactly why Deb and I have been pushing to change laws in America on coercive control. It's just not good enough that someone is told, and predominantly it's women who experience coercive control, that this is just a squabble. This is just a marital problem. Go to the civil courts, particularly when we're, as you've heard, dealing with a psychopath and someone who is very dangerous, who has a history and who is a serial perpetrator. So that's also why I've been pushing for a serial perpetrator register, because there should be join up. There should be law enforcement join up and looking at John Meehan and pulling together all the intelligence, all the information, and then doing something about him. And that's why it's important that women tell women's stories, because Deb did do things right, and those things were omitted 
from the initial storytelling. And, and what the book does is put the correct narrative out there, i.e. in Deb's own words. And I think it's important that women do have the microphone, hence why I wanted to talk to you again, because we've talked numerous times. We've been at CrimeCon together. Every time you and I talk, and certainly from, you know, I had a pre-read of the book, and obviously wrote a testimonial. And I think it's important that, and what I wrote on the testimonial for the book is that it might just save your life. Because in the book, we both talk about red flags and you talk about your experiences in detail. You can never do it justice in a, you know, even in an hour long interview. So the nuanced detail, the granular detail gets missed. And with the first wife project, which was an audible project I did with Tonya, who was John Meehan's first wife, and Deb, you and Tara also talked to us on that project too. She was also victimised and didn't really understand it, but we did a deep dive into John's behaviour and talked to people that hadn't been spoken with before. And, and that's really where I put the indirect assessment together on using the psychopathy checklist. And I can't remember if I ever told you, Deb, and we will wrap in a minute, but one of the things when I was assessing him, we had so I had so much information, first-hand accounts of people who knew him very well, including accounts from family members and yourself and Tonya and friends of his through the years. Um, he actually scored 40 out of 40, which is the highest wow. score. Yeah. Did um, I tell you that before? Or? You did. And I actually looked at that report and felt the same way. Yeah, and it's very yeah. interesting because people always characterized him as a sociopath. And mm -hmm. I always felt just from listening to you mm -hmm. and the detail of his characteristics and traits that he would score significantly on the psychopathy checklist. But he actually scores 40. And there's still some information that we don't know all the detail of, but most of it is filled in from family members, like I said. So a very dangerous individual. We cannot have law enforcement just saying, well, there's nothing that we can do when we're talking about these people. And it's exactly why the focus should be on the perpetrator, not what Deb did, not what Tonya did, not what any of the other Marilade or any of the other women that he targeted, not what they did. We should be focusing on the perpetrator. And that's why people should read the book. I want to thank you, Deb, for sharing space with me. We're literally over the same microphone and we've got Beatrice, the golden doodle in between us. There's so much more I could ask you about, but I want to honour your time. And, and I'll ask you if there's anything else that you just want to share that you feel is important for people to know about what happened or even where we are now. We're still trying to change laws. We want a federal law on coercive control. There's a law now in California, in Connecticut, and the fight continues because Deb and I are united in wanting to ensure that other women aren't gaslit, aren't love bombed, aren't charmed, aren't abused, and then framed in the media and in their own stories mm -hmm. as somehow being complicit and being part of the problem and being blamed. We want to change that. I agree with everything she said. <laughs> but anyway, the one thing that was so important for me in uh, sharing my story was the amount of women that are afraid to come forward, afraid to share their story because they are going to get victim blamed. And I get calls, emails, texts every day stating they're so glad that I came forward along with so many other women that have come forward. And if you can, stay safe for the people that are victims out there. Stay safe. Learn about educating yourself about curse of control, love bombing, narcissists, psychopaths, sociopaths, 
and just stay strong, stay connected. Yes, and don't allow yourself to be isolated. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, the most common tool that the perpetrator uses Mm -hmm. is isolation and trying to drive a wedge between the victim, their family, their friends, their loved ones. And that fear and the shame and humiliation that can keep women quiet. So I agree with Deb. We heard from many, many women after um, the documentary that we did together, Dirty John, The Dirty Truth. And I recommend if you haven't seen it, that's probably the truer account of what happened. But like I say, the book gives you much more detail. And with the offence, pushing for a new offence of coercive control, it's really important the power imbalance between women and men is included at the heart of the offence. It is the power imbalance. That's why it is sex-based and why we see more women who are abused and coercively controlled by men. And, And that's a fact. Yes, men can be victims, but it doesn't correlate significantly with serious harm and femicide. And and let's not forget Tara Newell, who your lovely daughter, and well, she survived. And like I said, I've rarely ever seen that before where the tables are turned and thank goodness that she did, but it could have had very tragic, a very tragic ending. And that's not to say, and I don't certainly do not want to minimize what Deb you've been through and what Tara and all your family members, your other daughter specifically have been through, because even when you're not physically killed or physically harmed, the trauma remains. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a case of, oh, you can just go to therapy and it's Mm -hmm. gone. It it lives with you. And that's Mm -hmm. the conversation Dev and I were having just after she met Rafi, Mm -hmm. um, just about, you know, how long trauma resides in the body for. So we must certainly not minimize people's experiences just because we see Deb looking, I mean, you're glowing now, you look wonderful, you're happy. And, but this story lives on and you still feel you want to talk about it and help other people. And that's always really been your driving force of why you have bared your soul really in telling this story. When you have had a lot of judgment coming Mm -hmm. at you and people Mm -hmm. blaming you, you've always stayed true to the fact you want to help other women. So I just want to thank you again for Mm -hmm. talking with me and for being honest and authentic and sharing your experience to help others. Well, thank you for bringing awareness, Laura. You changed my life with me understanding what curse of control was. So thank you. And becoming my good friend. <laughs> yes, and becoming good friends. And, yeah. you know, that's why I do what I do, Deb. And we yeah. know there will be other women out there listening to this and it will, they'll find it relatable. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. they will share their experiences. Well, I hope they share their experiences. I'm jumping back in here now to wrap the episode. What an incredible woman Deborah is. She's amazing, isn't she? Just so honest and sharing everything that happened to her because she doesn't want somebody else to go through it themselves. That really does take courage and strength. As I always say, it's not your shame, it's not your humiliation when an abuser has targeted you. It's much more about them and what they do and how they do it, but to share with others what really went on to ensure that others understand what red flags look like, well, that's important. And what I'll say about red flags also is this. To some people, red flags look and feel like home, particularly if they've been victimised as a child, for example. So what might be obvious to you or to me isn't always to others. And that's why I talk about lots of different cases and lots of people's experience to be able to contextualize and also 
that abusers use very idiosyncratic and personalised strategies targeted at particular victims. So it doesn't look the same for every case, although we may see patterns of behaviour across cases. And if you're interested in learning more, you can go onto my www.laurarichards.co.uk website where you'll see lots of different tabs on coercive control. And please do look up Deborah's book as well. The link is in the show notes. So go and buy yourself a copy. It really is an interesting read. And if you want to help with our law reform campaign, well, then you can check out the show notes where there is the petition that you can sign both in Australia and America, uh, where I've been lobbying hard for coercive control law reform. And if you have experienced coercive control, there's the Victims Voice Survey also included in the show notes. So I hope that's been a useful interview for you to hear. Please let me know. Message me on social media, at The Crime Analyst on Twitter, or at Crime Analyst on Instagram, at Crime Analyst Pod on TikTok. And I look forward to hearing your reactions to this interview. So until next week, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.